Caprioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 199, The End of the Middle. As we enter the last decade of the 18th century and the end of the second chapter of Welsh history, we begin to meet those who placed within them the first seeds of what we call Welsh nationalism. No longer a sectional society, Wales has become a country on its own, maybe by English accident, by hostility, prejudice, and then negligence, but nonetheless, something from the late phase of the Enlightenment period began to grow among intellectuals based in London who were so loyal to the idea of Wales. As we mentioned before, there was a growing Welsh dysphoria in London who had become connected to cultural change, cultural thought, and uh, continuing to educate in the language and trying to regain and re-establish Welsh history as something of importance. As there was also this growing level of expatriates who were living in these places and thinking long and hard about their own history and culture, English people themselves started to move around more, to do things that they hadn't normally done before, like holiday making, for example, going on vacations, if you want to use the North American term. It was something of a change of pace that came about because of the leisure time that people started to have more of. And, of course, this was always something afforded to the wealthy, but it was starting to become something that even the middle class that were growing in number were beginning to do. And it was, as historian Mervyn Jones pointed out, that English visitors who came in increasing numbers in the 1780s to marvel at the terrible symmetry of the mountains and the valleys viewed the Welsh, in this case the people, in a benign and patronizing fashion as an honest, industrious, pious people wedded to their mountains and to the Welsh language and its culture. In an a more actual then viewpoint, English tourist George John Bennett called the Welsh people simple, honest, obliging, and as they trudge along, a spirit of freedom sparkles in their eyes and seems to animate every action in their unfettered limbs. The idea of a rural, backward, but faithful, devoted, happy people became something of a perspective that continues, I would argue, to a degree to this day. You know, the idea of the Welsh being choir singing rugby lovers certainly is something that existed into the modern era. And it is something of a presentation that you get when you visit Wales. Having moved to Wales in 1999, I remember my first experience with the Welsh population in reality was a lot different than my experience in England. And that's not to say either side is bad or good. It's just a, a difference in personality type that I saw. Now, how emblematic is that of the way Welsh people are in general? Obviously, like everyone else, everybody's different. There are those that are happy to meet you, excited to hear your voice, want to talk to you about where you're from, what are you doing here, blah, 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 blah. Then there's others who are not happy you are here and wish you would go home. So to say that everyone is this pure, you know, naive rube, effectively, is, um, well, to put it bluntly, 
stereotypical and prejudiced and it comes across quite clearly that a lot of the English tourists saw themselves in a better light than they did the Welsh population, kind of along the same line as Tacitus saw the Welsh, or at least the Roman Britons, when they were conquered as being better off in their tribal format than as conquered citizens of Roman Britain. Over the past 100 episodes, of course, We've spent a lot of time looking at how Wales had almost become an independent nation then became a subjected people and importantly amalgamated by decisions in London into the greater British whole. As mentioned above to the English, the Welsh were that quaint place where people were being looked at as if they were some sort of simple, pure people who spoke different and had a unique culture. Over the next century, the English and Welsh would travel more and more because of this, of course, conflicts would grow as both sides started to see the other as an issue. As mentioned before, a lot of landholders were absentee landlords who had no connection to the areas they controlled. The days of Glyndwr and Henry VI saw a number of major family lines either disowned or wiped out in Wales, and in their place were Englishmen who knew nothing about their new subjects and never really spent any time there. During this period of transition, the English monarchy became a British one, and in that space became an international monarchy as they spread their wings, founding colonies, funding and authorizing corporate colonies in places as diverse as Hudson's Bay and India. As the world expanded and more of the globe became in reach, people began to try and find new ways to make things easier and quicker. One thing that we really have only mentioned in passing so far is the reason why urbanization was growing throughout Britain. The Industrial Revolution began with the discovery and mass use of cotton spinning, which would replace wool as the most used fabric in a short period of time, around about 100 years. By the 1750s, Britain imported 2.5 million pounds of raw cotton most of which was spun and woven by a cottage industry in Lancashire, initially done by hand in homes throughout the area and in weavers' shops. Within 100 years, the industry exploded, and in 1787, raw cotton consumption was at 22 million pounds, an increase in magnitudes quite large, but the British textile industry used 52 million pounds of cotton by 1880 which then increased to 588 million pounds by 1850. This rapid increase, of course, saw a boom that created a situation where the financial ability of those who could weave this product began to grow. This, combined with the ever-increasing populations and financial spending power due to Britain becoming a financial center of Europe, built up even higher demand for the product. Textile Industries was the tipping point for the manufacture and use of machines. One of the first was the Flying Shuttle, patented in 1733 by John Kay, which would over a 15-year period double the output of the weavers, worsening the imbalance between spinning and weaving, and it became widely used around Lancashire after 1760, when John's son Robert invented the drop box, which facilitated changing thread colors. In this space, 
came James Hargreave in 1770, just 10 years later, who patented the hand-powered spinning jenny, which saw the creation of one of the earliest machines built on a multiple spindle and in an active and quick use for spinning wool or cotton. This industry would be the first to create factories where labor was shrunk from various wide locations across farms and cottages and shops in a wide area into a much more focused location. Suddenly, instead of having 100 people scattered throughout the countryside, you could have one location which it could have 100 people making and producing cotton fabric. Because of this, urbanization would grow, and of course, because more people moved to where the employment was booming, where the money was to be made, as typically they would be paid better, and these factories were being centered near areas where they were closer to markets. Obviously, you want to have your ability to ship be as small as possible so that your financial gain becomes as large as possible. Rural families were finding that more and more pressure was being put on them to move from these rural locations, which are generally isolated and smaller, into these major urban centers. That would, of course, be one of the reasons why the London Welsh population started to boom in this period. Another aspect of this massive cotton demand was the change in the southern American colonies to produce more cotton as it was more profitable than some of the other products they had been producing, including tobacco, leading to even more imports of slaves to grow, harvest, and manage the crop. The Industrial Revolution both sped up the use of slaves, but would eventually become the key to making them redundant, thus building an abolitionist movement to put an end to slavery. So it, in a way, did both. It both increased the use of industrial slavery and ended it because of the lesser need for them as machines became more complex and more able to handle what would traditionally be done by either very poorly paid laborers or slave market. The effect of industrialization was a further improvement all centered in England, and the British government sought to protect this industry by keeping the inventions out of the hands of other European countries or even America. This protectionist ethos was built around the idea that they would continue to gain from this and the financial benefits that it gave them in being ahead of the other countries in maintaining this lead. Of course, they knew that it couldn't last forever, but by giving themselves this massive step forward, the British allowed themselves to corner many markets and continue to fund colonization, even as they lost possession of the 13 colonies. Keep in mind, as they had lost the U.S. colonies, they would in the end, continue to add more and more as the decades roll along, Australia becomes a major colony after the Americas, as does New Zealand. And of course, the scramble for Africa would happen in the 1800s, which is when a lot of British colonies were created there as well. So there is this massive explosion and expansion and colonization that happens even after the 13 colonies split off 
because the financial ability of the British to afford such a thing. And of course, the need for the raw resources that would help fund continually all of this expansion and creation. Machines were now achieving productivity at a faster rate than human spinners and were, of course, as I mentioned earlier, cheaper, something that was key to the Lancashire weavers who had up until this point been making increased wages due to the demand for them and the fact that they were working nonstop effectively to continue that processing. All of this, of course, would have a knock-on effect of creating a need for more and more iron and steel to help with the construction of these machines and these factories to drive the industry forward to power the heat needed in order to create the energy that would derive the basis of the entire industry. And of course, to protect these machines from the constant wear and tear that, of course, if they were made out of wood, would fall apart much faster. In order to create more and more iron and steel to speed up the process, over the 18th century, the iron producers moved from wood burning, which had been a key producer, both in wood and in charcoal, and then moved to coke, which is a, a charcoal infused with an oil to make it burn longer, and then to coal, which would then make a more efficient and higher temperatured heat, something that would, of course, drive the industrial machines for nearly 100 years and would drive forward the pace of expansion at a degree that I don't think anyone imagined 50 years even prior to that. Of course, this would mean that Britain would need massive amounts of high-quality coal to build on this advantage, and of course, it would initially get this from one major source. The Welsh mountain and hills would derive the pace of industry and would introduce Wales to the Industrial Revolution. Today, I want to give a shout out to uh, the sponsor of today's podcast, Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab offers you an opportunity if you're like me and you're getting older and you're finding your black spots under the eyes or wrinkles around and laugh lines, things that might bother you as you're aging and make you feel like you are older than you really are, Caldera Lab has formulated a number of products to help with that and to help make your day easy and simple. Their regime includes three products, including the Clean Slate, the Base Layer, and the Good. Clean Slate starts and ends your day. It's a face wash to help refresh your skin. Base Layer is a daily moisturizer to hydrate your skin. And the Good is the go-to multifunctional serum at night, which helps your skin look tighter and smoother, helps reduce the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. And the Caldera Lab Icon Eye Serum addresses the three common skin concerns around the eye, fine lines, dark circles, and puffiness, which I know I've had quite often. It is a leader in men's skin care and made only with top ingredients and clinical trials have found that 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger look in appearance after using Caldera Labs for just a few weeks. We have a special exclusive offer if you use the code Welsh History Pod, all one word, at calderalab.com, you will get 20% off right now. Get 20% off with the code Welsh History Pod at calderalab.com and make an unforgettable first impression that leads to the charming words, 
you look younger. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, as the Industrial Revolution continued to grow and it started to bring in more and more parts of the UK into its sphere of influence, including, in the case, as I said, of Wales, of shipping coal and iron product into England for mass production, it would, of course, create a unity of people and create more of a sense of national identity. Nationalism, of course, was only something that was at the earliest edges of its existence. Previously, loyalty had been based on being loyal to the monarch through your local lord. This was, of course, what was the key to feudalism. Before that existed, you were loyal to a local chief or possibly the local king. And it was that loyalty that was derived in creating your understanding of your world around you. You'd have to go back to the Romans to come up with anything equivalent to what would happen in the modern sphere. But even that loyalty was driven by a loyalty to the emperor as opposed to the greater whole of a national identity. Effectively, in that period, everybody was either Roman or barbarian, and there wasn't really another side. However, the end of feudalism created a gap in how people were responsible for others. During the convulsions of early modern England and Wales, it felt like most of the old ways were slowly destroyed, and with the end of Catholicism as the primary religious movement and social welfare safety net, came end of what was then the monastery's position in society. And of course, you add to that the large amounts of gentry and nobles being killed during the civil wars, which were a feature of both the 15th and 17th centuries. The political convulsions of the late 18th century, associated with both the American and French revolutions, massively augmented the widespread appeal of patriotic nationalism. Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power further established nationalism when he invaded much of Europe. Napoleon used this opportunity to spread revolutionary ideas, resulting in much of the rise of what would become the 19th century's version of European nationalism, both in the countries that were fighting him as well as the countries he dominated. In Wales, at the end of the 18th century, a combination of various things were creating more of a national outlook on their values, culture, and language. First was the rise of the interest in this culture and history, which had begun under the Enlightenment. This included a general push towards literacy, 
which created a space for Anglo and Welsh speakers to become educated. It expanded a drive towards building a national place for Wales, a place which to this point seemingly had no identity, or at least an identity which was built upon how the society as a whole, including England, viewed them. Second was the shift away from one of the more powerful economic drivers in Wales for about a thousand years, wool production. Wool production had been starting to see its demand slackening due to the use of cotton, while wool was still being used in large measure for textiles, especially in the United States, for the slave market where most of the slaves were dressed up and afforded access to woolen products because they were cheaper. Cotton was driving the Industrial Revolution and it was making life difficult for those in Wales who were depending upon that wool to feed their families, something which, of course, as I said, had been something going back to Roman times. Finally, by the beginning of the 1800s, and certainly within a few decades of that start, Coal production became the biggest economic driver in Wales, taking the economy southward from the middle part of Wales, where more of the sheep and wool production was from, and moving it into the valleys around the south, driving both economic and migration patterns towards that direction. As the English and Welsh moved to populate the coal mining areas, which would then soon drive urbanization in South Wales. As more and more people began to settle in Cardiff, Swansea, and Merthyr Tydfil, more and more people became aware of the growing sense of what was the blossoming of Welsh nationalism. This had, of course, become important in London, amongst the London Welsh, but it was starting to become a discussion point even in the main parts of Wales, which in its past had been divided by its regionalization and different perceptions on who should dominate and control the country. The one aspect of the English homogenization of the landscape, it did create an evident idea of being Welsh, one that wasn't just something of a shared language or a shared culture, but also a shared national identity. And it was, of course, made even more apparent by the English perceptions of the Welsh as an other, which would always have created this problem, if you want to call it a problem. Because, of course, as someone who studies Welsh history, it's not a problem, but if you're looking at it from an English aspect, it definitely would have been. While talking about this, and we'll certainly cover a number of people in the 19th century who definitely were leaders in Welsh nationalism, we could and should mention at least one person from this period, which is William Jones, who was an ardent Welsh nationalist who would support the cause of both the American and French revolutions. This strong support of these revolts earned him the nickname the Rural Voltaire, or the Welsh Voltaire, depending on who it was mentioning him. This was, of course, not a complimentary nickname, to be clear, as he had been accused of being a rank Republican and a leveler, both of which were a large slur at the time in Britain. He would continue to argue that he was not a traitor, but that he supported the people over those in power. 
Despite his vocal support of these foreign revolutions, Jones never advocated violent Welsh Republican uprisings against the monarchy or the British government, but rather his view was is that he encouraged the Welsh population to emigrate en masse to the, in quotes, promised land in the newly founded United States of America. This idea of creating a new place where the Welsh people could seek something that would allow them to be Welsh, to have their culture, and to be amongst their people, to use their language and to control their destiny was something that many had found interesting, exciting, or at least a dream that they could look forward to. It would push eventually to the founding of Patagonian Colony in Argentina a few years later, as that desire to separate from England continued to drive a few forward into the rest of the world, much like the Scottish and Irish were doing at the same time. Like many subsequent Welsh nationalists, however, Jones held very strong anti-English sentiments. Jones was equally enraged by the increasing language loss amongst the lower-class Welsh people, which led one contemporary to describe Jones as the hottest arsed Welshman he had ever met. During the Eisteddfod revival of the 1790s, as the Gwynethian Society member William Jones argued for the creation of a national Eisteddfod of Wales, he had come to believe that completely anglicized Welsh nobility through something called rack renting, in effect charging exorbitant rents for property, as well as their employment of unscrupulous land agents, he argued they forfeited all right to obedience and respect from their tenants. He described these landlords as destitute of the principles of justice and moral honesty, end quote. At the Llanfirst Eisteddfod in June of 1791, Jones distributed copies of an address entitled To All Indigenous Cambro-Britons, in which he urged Welsh tenant farmers and craftsmen to pack their bags and emigrate from Wales and sail to what he called, as I said earlier, the promised land in the United States. This earliest understanding of nationality and of the common arguments that would feature for many years to come, that effectively Welsh property and Welsh landholders were being dominated, controlled, and forced off their property by ever-increasing prices would consistently be an issue for Wales going forward, one that still plagues the country to this day and has been a source of conflict and of both political arguments and reasons for vandalism and hostility carried forward for a number of reasons now, but nonetheless, this is something that is important and is growing, and it's important to understand at this point, it was more about the richer class of society controlling more and more property and forcing tenant farmers off their land or making more and more money off of them. So the idea of moving to a land where you could have your own property free of increasing costs and increasing oversight from a nobility would be something that would intrigue someone who was looking at these new republics and seeing the brighter side to them. And certainly Jones was one of those people 
in this early period. And as we move into the 19th century and beyond, we will see that this actually continues to grow, this mentality of Welsh nationalism being looked at as a pawn of the greater English ideal and how it becomes important to set boundaries and to protect the old culture from the new. And with all that said and done, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Also, if you have interest in helping uh, fund the show's uh, book purchases and research, you can do that via patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day. And as a reminder, in the next episode, we will be doing a live YouTube session where we will be answering questions that have been passed to me from various people. And I hope that uh, you enjoy that as we hit episode 200 as a precursor for entering into what I'd like to call season three as we move into the more modern period and start talking about Wales becoming its own character and its own place once more as a part of the nation of countries that would make up the United Kingdom. And with that, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Oil. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.